the short answer is enjoy yourself and learn to savor the meal. So that this concept of savoring and the idea that if you're going to go to Thanksgiving dinner, enjoy yourself. Don't think about the amount of butter you're putting on a roll or you know how many servings of pie you're going to have or how much you're going to drink. Enjoy yourself, but consciously enjoy yourself. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all for a happy life, a healthier life. This episode, we've got returning guest. He's from the National Academy of Sports Medicine, Rich Fahmy, also Servite grad. Gotta throw that out there. This is a big deal to uh, have another fellow alumni on this show. Gwen, did you know that our that our fitness related podcasts are some of our highest rated ones? I know you told me that. I don't know why it surprised me, but I think that that's really cool. Yeah, you know what's really cool. You know, Rich even was telling us um, towards the end of this episode about his employers. Um, the National Academy of Sports Medicine, apparently they have their own podcast out there and it's extremely successful and Rich is helping run that. So kudos to him. Um, my guess is, is that people do want to hear about fitness and health when they're listening to podcasts. And that kind of makes sense, right? People listen to podcasts when they're working out, maybe are in podcasts when they're in their car and they'd rather be working out. But I wonder what, the, I wonder what that means. And I wonder what that means for the holidays that are coming up. And, and this is kind of focused on the upcoming holidays, both Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and eating and BMI. We learned a lot about BMI. I, I don't even know if I brought up the story on this episode, Gwen, of how I tried to get my BMI to what it's supposed to be. So for somebody who is six foot two, which is what I am, I'm supposed to be 194 pounds. And I did briefly achieve that during the pandemic. I tell you, I, I was slim, but as discussed on this episode, I didn't really have like any kind of muscle mass and I didn't like it. I didn't like my body. In fact, Katie even told me, she's like, don't ever do that again. Like it doesn't look right on you. BMI is not for everybody. And we explain why on this episode. Yeah. You know, you and I have both talked about, you know, self-esteem and body issues like on and off the podcast before. And I was thinking about this episode with Rich and I'm so grateful for it because something I realized was that this is something I could have really used when I was younger. I wish that I'd had this information when I was younger because something he has said on this episode and he said in the previous episode was that this myth that your thinnest self is your best self or your fittest self. And so he really breaks down the distinction between what is health and what works for your body versus just a diet fad. I felt so much of that pressure when I was younger and something that really hit me, um, I think Zadie, my daughter was about two years old and she was looking in a full length mirror and she was just in awe of her reflection. And she was just smiling and giggling and she lifted up her shirt and she stuck her tummy out. Then I did the same thing next to her to kind of be playful. But what happened when I looked at myself in the mirror? Criticism. And it just reminded me of how far I am from that natural state of joy and wonderment at your body. And I had just been bombarded with all of this information over the years about what it is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to be and how to criticize it instead of enjoying it. And I think it's a step further than self-acceptance. It's joy at what your body can do. It's the mechanism and how you experience the world. So Rich's information is so invaluable. At, wait, is it invaluable or valuable? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's both. I have no idea. You know, who's, who's, who's this, who's, who in the world could tell us we're wrong? This is our show. <laughs> this is our show. Whatever. We're going to make up words. But I am so grateful to this. And I hope that even though I didn't hear Rich's information in my younger self, I'm just hoping that younger people out there get this, that how you can enjoy food, enjoy your body, understand what BMI does, these measurements, the helpfulness of them, the limitations of them. Really a great episode. And the economics of them too. We get into the economics of them, the history of them, you know, whether or not we discussed it here, if anybody out there wants to get some additional research into BMI and how it's used by insurance companies, you should educate yourself before you just, before you just say, okay, my BMI should be X and I'm going to do it. You really need to think about uh, the implications of that and if that's right for you. Okay. So let's talk about, what are we going to say? BMI health and the holidays? <laughs> um, I, you know what? I like that. BMI health and the holidays. But you know, Rudy, that's actually why during the pandemic and then everybody on Zoom, that the people who made the most amount of money were dermatologists and plastic surgeons. Because the video calls. Right, because everybody's looking at themselves for an unnatural period of oh, time. Oh, I, I that hate makes it. sense. I really hate it, man. You know what? And That's you know what? sad. But but no 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 no. It's relevant for our discussion today, Rich, because we are. I understand we're going to talk about you know BMI and we're going to talk about fitness and we're going. to, But really, what we're focusing on is how do we look good and what does looking good mean and and, and get down into the details of it. So it is relevant that we started off this way. <laughs> yeah, perfect. That's very true, and and health and all that all that good stuff. Well, Rich, well, we'll just go ahead then. I mean, Rich, okay. welcome back to Good Is in the Details. Everybody really loved your episode with us on the science of movement. I'm looking forward to this. You know, a lot of times when, let's say when I'm teaching philosophy and the ancient Greeks, they talked about the value of the soul and the mind and character traits. And sometimes students will ask about, well, what about like the body or what about athletes? Do they count as good people? And I say mm. that athleticism is the expression of healthy character traits, that it's not just mm -hmm. about the body, but all of that is wrapped together. So having you on to talk about what it means to live a healthy life and how to understand BMI and maybe how to navigate the holidays is really perfect for us to understand what it means to live life well. I'm wondering where we should start. Where do you think we should start, Rich? Um, it depends on you, really. But I mean, we could start with BMI if you want, because we can talk about kind of where it came from. Let's start here. Can we all three of us agree we hate video calls and we're going to start a <laughs> fundamental movement to bring them down? Can we can we start there and then and then we can I move forward? Yeah, I, I don't know if I can do that because I the NESM, so the National Academy of Sports Medicine, we have our own podcast network and we always do a YouTube version of every episode. Mm. You're conflicted. So yes, ethically, you're out. Yes. I'm conflicted, but this sounds, it does, this sounds fantastic, by the way, this platform. Um, I love it. You know, I'm conflicted. I have no makeup on. <laughs> Me either. So it I works didn't out. have to get ready. I love this. <laughs> I'm always wearing makeup, but that's a whole other podcast. Right? So no, no, Rich, let, let's, let's start. That's with, your music background. Let's start with where you think we should start here. I mean, you, you approached us with this topic. We, you mm. lead us into this discussion, sir. Sure. I mean, we could talk about BMI because BMI then leads into all these other things about how you feel about yourself and how you approach the holidays, especially with that coming up, because, you know, it's sort of rife with guilt inducing tactics and 
tough things and situations to navigate. So we, we can do that. You know, BMI is one of these deals that it's not necessarily shrouded in mystery, but I think it's taken for a much higher amount of validity than it really has. If we talk about where it was developed, it was um, developed in the 1830s by a, a Belgian statistician named Lambert Adolphe Jacques Catelet. I think I got that right. His family, I'm sure, would be pleased. It, <laughs> but you know, it was developed because he was trying to find the average man, quote unquote. It was in the 1830s. Actuaries were trying to figure out, you know, there were high death rates. So he wanted to see if there was any physical characteristic that were related or characteristics that were related to high death rates. At this time, too, really, infectious disease was sort of your leading cause of death, you know, typhoid fever, tuberculosis, things like that. He landed on is there a relationship, relationship between height, weight, and dying is kind of the quickest way to put it. The problem, though, initially is a sample population consisted of only white, French, and Scottish men. Mm. So that wasn't very helpful at developing something that applies to general population. He did not advocate it, though, as a measure of adiposity or the amount of fat tissue someone has. Its original design was to assess risk and the death patterns of a population, not an individual at all. So that, that didn't happen until Ansel Keys, an American physiologist, tried to replace the old height and weight tables and insurance companies with something like this index. It, I'm sorry, if we can get to like the very, very basics, right? Mm -hmm. What does BMI actually stand for? Oh, sure. Body mass index. And it's it's calculated by taking your weight in kilograms and dividing it by your height uh, squared. It's a mass to surface area. So it wants to know how much mass lives in an approximation of your surface area, which taking your height and squaring it isn't the best approximation of your surface area. Statistically, it's more valid than doing weight divided by your height or weight divided by your height cubed, which would be in a, like a volume assessment. Anyways, it's statistically the most stable version of, of a weight and height relationship. That's how it's formulated. It seems to me one of the conundrums would be with, I mean, if somebody is very muscular, then they would have a mm -hmm. different BMI or their BMI might register as being unhealthy when actually they are healthy. Or somebody who is, let's say, very thin, it might not, it, they might register as healthy, but it really isn't. Correct. Yeah. And, and the someone who's heavily muscled, the, the way it throws off BMI isn't isn't as problematic as you might think. But the, the biggest issue is it doesn't really measure body composition very well. Adipose tissue composition, you know, fat tissue distribution, metabolic differences among people, lifestyle behaviors, genetics, weight loss history, you know, mood disorders, trauma, fat phobia can't be used to assess health or living conditions in any kind of sort of valid way. All these things affect health. And health, as you know, just it's multifactorial. So you can't go, hey, your BMI is high, therefore your health is going to be negatively impacted. Its utility is in population study. So from a population standpoint, you know, there are large data sets that can point to a population that may have some issues, you know, cardiometabolically. So like high blood pressure, insulin resistance, elevated blood sugar. And so we can say, are there interventions that we can put in place in this population from a public health standpoint that can be helpful? But that's, that's really it. That's the utility of a BMI. And it's easy to do on a population. It can be done by a phone survey, right? What's your height? What's your weight? But in terms of using it to assess someone's health as an, on an individual basis, so a physician using it, a fitness professional using it, an insurance company using it, it really isn't the most valid way to do it. There's tons of research that show that they're probably in the realm of easily 56, 57 million adults that are overweight or have obesity on a BMI chart but have zero cardiometabolic abnormalities or health issues. So you really can't use it from an individual standpoint. 
what are we talking about when we talk about fat phobia? That is brought up, are we, I don't know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of, I don't know, like when you said like somebody's size or somebody's weight isn't necessarily an indication of something that is problematic, then you've got this fat phobic type of culture. And then there's been this backlash of saying, hey, wait, no, if you're overweight, that's really an, um, an unhealthy way of being. All of it seems kind of like, why are we talking about other people's weight? That just seems very unkind mm -hmm. to me in the first place. But what is, from your background, what do you think about this culture of fat phobia and what does it mean? What can we take away from it? What should we know about it? So the simplest way that, that I think about it is it's a cultural thought or group think, I guess, that your thinnest self is automatically your best self. When we have that thought, you become phobic of having excess body weight or being in a larger body, and it drives all sorts of unhealthy behaviors and thoughts and, and moods and decisions because you're just so scared of becoming fat in the eyes of our cultural obsessions or our society. It's also, you can think of it a diet culture. It's a very similar thing where you must, you must diet to become thin because that must be your healthiest self and your best self, which isn't true. What defines health in the context of, you know, what we're talking about BMI is actually not a BMI score. It's sort of these other collection of factors that you can use to assess health that are, that are better at assessing health at an individual level. And so that's really how I look at fat phobia is, is, you know, you're just so scared of becoming, of being in a larger body and your thinnest self is your best self. Is that kind of flawed logic? Yes. Yeah, I'm, yes. And there really is that fear. And I know that women, I don't know how it is for men. I know that for women, it's definitely there. And now that we're talking about it, there is this trend. I mean, I know that um, I don't want to catch you off guard by asking this question, but it just mm. dawned on me that there is this trend with this new diet pill, like, oh, is it called Ozempic or something along those lines? Mm -hmm. What is it? Is it is it safe? How did this all of a sudden, is it the new FenFen? Like, what's going on with this thing? And because I'm hearing about celebrities taking it to get even mm -hmm. thinner. And that, to me, really frightens me because we're looking at these people as role models as though not only your thinnest self is your best self, but it's almost like you're more moral. You're a better human when you're really thin. So what is this trend with Ozempic? Like, I don't get it. So Ozempic is um, a diabetes, type 2 diabetes medication. And um, there's a couple of things that it, it works. Don't quote me on this one, but I believe also they're not fully 100% sure of how it works, but some of the effects it has, and it's called semaglutide and, and this, or GLP-1, it's this class of medications like Ozempic and um, Wagovi, which is the same thing, just marketed for weight loss. So it slows gastric emptying. So it takes longer for food to empty from your stomach. So it creates some of these fullness signals. And then it also has hormonal actions that have to do with sugar metabolism. These things lead to you being fuller sooner and for longer. So you have this sensation of, of fullness that you might not otherwise have. And there are some um, studies to also show it, it reduces cardiovascular event risk. So things like stroke. It's promising. It's been around, they've been around a long time, but we're hitting this wave of people who are not diabetic using it. And so it's, it's kind of new territory to have this many people use it for purely weight loss instead of diabetes. So that, that's kind of the, the long and the short of it. Oh my God. Rudy, have you heard of this? This new trend? Oh yeah. No, totally. I know people that are using it right now. In fact, in fact, somebody accused uh, a client um, who I hadn't seen for a little while, accused me of using it because he said I'd looked extremely fit. And he's like, what have you been doing? You've been doing the Ozempic? And I'm like, no, 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 man, I'm not, I'm not touching that stuff. But yeah, I'm, I'm fully aware of it. 
I mean, it's it's pretty revolutionary from what I've been reading about it. And, and I do think that it could have great benefits for society, especially as diabetes and other complexities as a result of obesity um, are, are so pervasive in our society, uh, which I, of course, you know, I have to tie in transportation, this whole thing. I, I blame <laughs> I blame mostly the car, the fact that we don't walk that much anymore as human beings. It's true. No, no, for sure. A hundred percent. No, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally that simple, in my opinion, the fact that we heavily rely upon the car rather than our own legs. Now, of course, not everybody can use a car. You know, not everybody has the benefit. There are people with disabilities, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, that's what I think. But no, um, Ozempic is uh, the other related drugs are having ripple effects. In fact, I even read a stock report about how this is going to affect certain stock prices. Like it's absolutely revolutionary. Now, from what I understand, Rich, basically once you start it, you can't stop it because it'll come back immediately. Do I have that correct? And I, the, 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 when I refer to is the weight. So there is a rebound effect that's reported. So your appetite comes back. I mean, you know, kind of jokingly, you start craving things you didn't even like before. The hunger effects rebound. And so you do have your appetite back and then some is what's reported. And the tricky part is there are, so objectively for diabetics, Ozempic is, like you're saying, Rudy, it's, it's pretty substantially helpful especially with some of these cardioprotective benefits. But if you're looking at someone who's only using it to lose 15 pounds, you're, you're getting these interesting sort of secondary health issues like loss of muscle tissue, for example, because I'm not eating as much, you know, and I, and I don't feel like eating. So therefore, I'm losing muscle tissue and, and muscle tissue is itself an endocrine organ. So you're, you're affecting, without going too far down that rabbit hole, you're sort of affecting your physiology in that way. People have sort of other complaints around it, but you know, you, you could be getting secondary effects of it that aren't so great. But you know, there is a point I believe that someone does need to stop it. I'm sure there's some sort of protocol to wean off of it. I'm not sure, but you know, some of the reporting is there's there's a quite a, a profound appetite rebound when you stop it. Oh, I just had a feeling that something like that. Yeah, like what happens when you stop using it? Oh man. Because I'm just imagining if you're just not hungry for a long time, or you're just feeling that sensation of full, and it's an induced feeling, like it's not a natural thing, what happens when that stops, if you wouldn't go in the other direction? Right, right. And and to me, the problematic thing about using it purely for weight loss is, you know, if someone wants to do that for, you know, they're making their that decision for them, then, you know, who are we to, to judge them, right? They just, people have to do it with their eyes wide open when they're doing that. But then what's the narrative? It's, it's interesting that when people say they're using it to lose weight, for example, people are going, oh, you're taking the easy way out, right? And there's a narrative around that. And it's not. People that are taking it, they do have to or at least they should, they should exercise. And while they're eating less, they should still take a look at what they're eating. And it's still not a magic pill in terms of it just makes you diet. You know, some people may report that, but you're, you're still watching what you eat. You still have to put effort there and you should exercise to preserve muscle tissue. So the, the lifestyle changes aren't necessarily different. It's just, it might make the lifestyle changes a little easier, but also they're at the expense of some discomfort, right? There's some gastrointestinal stuff that might come along with it. So it's not just this magic pill. There's still effort and lifestyle change that goes along with it. But people are sort of slammed for going, oh, you're taking the easy way out, easy way out, huh? And what is that enforcing? So we, as a society, have condemned people who are in larger bodies 
ways, but at the same time, if they do something to try and reduce their weight, then they're taking the easy way out. It's a lose-lose. And what we do culturally, it's part of that fat phobic culture. Rich, that's a good point. You know, I didn't, I didn't even think about it that way when I was, when my clients were probably just joking around saying, oh, you must be on Ozempic. And, and I immediately said, no, I actually work out, you know, seven days a week. I'm doing weights. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Like, so it, it was kind of like, I guess I was a little bit insulted by that because I took it like that, like, no, I'm not taking the easy way out. So I'm glad you said that because that will make me rethink about should that question ever come up? Not not that I was really offended, but like your, your point is a good one. Like we should not be shaming anybody for what they need to do for their health. If they need to do that, whether it's easy or not, I, 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 I'm not walking in that person's shoes. Like, I, I don't know, like, who am I to pass judgment upon that person? Not that I was passing judgment upon anybody that uses it in any way, shape or form. I just kind of had like a reaction when somebody was accusing me of using it. But your point is a good one. We need to be accepting of everybody and every body and just promoting of health. This episode of Good is in the Details is brought to you by Truvaga. Are you stressed out? Can't sleep? Truvaga's got you covered. Say goodbye to restless nights and hello to inner peace with our vagus nerve. Is that my saying? Vagus nerve. <laughs> our vagus nerve, vagus nerve stimulation therapy. Vagus nerve. <laughs> It's time to take control of your stress and get the sleep you deserve. Hey, Rudy, I could use that. I could use some uh, true Vaga as well. Because I, I guess, guess what? I am stressed out. I can't sleep. And I do have restless nights. And I need inner peace. Sounds like I need true Vaga. That's right. Especially this holiday season. The vagus nerve is a major component. Vagus nerve. <laughs> The vagus nerve plays a crucial role in regulating various bodily functions, including heart rate, digestion, stress, inflammation, and mood. Vagus nerve stimulation involves delivering gentle energy impulses to the vagus nerve to balance the nervous system branches, leading to a wide range of wellness benefits by altering both sympathetic and parasympathetic activities. We will link this in the show notes. You want to use promo code DETAILS, all caps, to receive $15 off at checkout. Vagus nerve. <laughs> For the people that don't know how to pronounce it, I'm, 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 I'm making sure. I didn't even know what this thing was. Now, I might have just figured out my problems. I think, I think all of my sleep and everything is because I have some problems with my... Vagus nerve. Yes, I am going to be a true Vaga client... <laughs> user ASAP. All right. Rudy's getting it. I'm getting it. Good is in the details, listeners. You want it. Remember, use promo code details for $15 off. And let's talk about stress and holidays because now we're talking about, you know, thinking about the fat phobia. And I love the way you phrased it, like just this fear of being in a larger body that would actually curb somebody's happiness. It would curb somebody enjoying themselves. So the holiday time, and I don't know why we don't do it like the Canadians do. You know, the Canadians have Thanksgiving in October, which I think is brilliant because we've got our Thanksgiving in November and then it just feels like December's around the corner <laughs> where we're all of a sudden mm -hmm. eating a lot of food. So holidays are about a lot of eating, a lot of celebration, a lot of drinking. And there can also be a lot of depression around this time. There can be a lot of, you know, 
serious feelings going on. What would be your recommendation of navigating our way through that where we can enjoy ourselves, but not feel guilty, but not overdo it, and then have a healthy mindset? That's, I want to know if you can answer all of that. <laughs> we'll see. I'll give it, a, I'll give it a, a good old college try. The short answer is enjoy yourself and learn to savor the meal. So that this concept of savoring and the idea that if you're going to go to Thanksgiving dinner, enjoy yourself. Don't think about the amount of butter you're putting on a roll or you know how many servings of pie you're going to have or how much you're going to drink. Enjoy yourself, but consciously enjoy yourself. It's this idea of you're not paying attention that sometimes can affect how you experience a meal or experience your time with family, because that's what it's about. It's about time with family and friends, or I mean, depending on how dysfunctional your family is, that's probably another episode. We won't go there, but you know, <laughs> you know, family and friends and really taking time to sit down and enjoy the meal. I think where people might run into issues if we want to talk about consumption is, is when they're not thinking about it and they have the boxes of candy at home and, you know, it's, it's all these times in between the meals and gatherings, which again, you want to be careful there because you don't want to label food good or bad. There's just, are you really enjoying yourself? Mm -hmm. That's actually your measure is it's not what's good or bad. I, I can't stand the charts you're going to start to see where a piece of pie is so many minutes on a treadmill or, you know, these different things. Hate those. Absolutely hate those. Promote a dysfunctional relationship with food. If we're looking at your overall well-being, then you should go eat, drink, and be merry. You should. You should enjoy it. If those things are in alignment with your own wellness goals, then yes. And we're not talking about problematic drinking or anything like that. We're just talking about go to the Thanksgiving dinner, go to the Christmas dinner, enjoy yourself, but consciously try and savor every moment of it, the experience, and that includes the food. I really like that because I think that maybe even just an over you know, an overall issue is when people are not aware of when they are full and that's how the overeating happens. And it's so strange to me. And I think like we're rational beings, but we don't really know when we're full. This might sound like a silly question, but how does one know, like how does one become conscious of when one has had a sufficient amount of food? So there's a, a concept and I'm, I think I'm going to, one of the authors I know is Triboli and the other one I believe is Pesh. I'm not positive about that. But if you looked up intuitive eating, you're going to see very quickly their book comes up and their website comes up. But the idea there is it's not just, you know, people sort of take intuitive eating as a principle of, okay, you just listen to your fullness signals, but it's not. It's actually, that's part of it. The whole process is about what is your relationship with food? So there's no food police. There's no labeling foods as good or bad. You're coming to peace with your relationship with food is really, it's, a, it's about that. One thing you can do is just take your time, like that whole savoring thing, take your time, enjoy it. Don't just scarf down the piece of pie. If you love pumpkin pie, sit and enjoy it. What you'll find too is when you do that is you will naturally kind of tune in to when you're full. You know, you, you'll be less likely to feel sort of uncomfortable right? Because those are sort of some of the gauges of, of you're uncomfortable. And, and a lot of that is some of the signals for fullness take a little time. But if, if I take out a Thanksgiving dinner and a piece of pie in a matter of 10 minutes, then I have not given my body a chance to catch up to my speed of consumption. So it's, it's really slow down, consciously sort of enjoy what you're eating. And the fullness signal will have time to tell you, okay, 
you're pretty satisfied right now and you can wait and do seconds later or you know you don't have to do seconds or whatever it is or you can go watch some football or whatever it is you want to do or play some football depending on what your holiday is like so that's really it is is just slow down and enjoy it really is the best way to tune into your fullness signals and don't put any kind of narrative around the food yeah that to me i think it's something that happens quite a bit as i put a narrative around the food it's not about the food it's about the gathering it's about the well i mean it is also about the food let's let's be real (laughs) but enjoy it when you have it i just have memories of growing up that i was definitely um i know it just hit women in particular but the whole measuring and counting calories and how long you have to run before you can consume this or that how many calories to burn like everything is about measurements that even to this day, even though I'm 46, I still look at food in terms of some sort of a cost benefit analysis and it, not as much, but it took me a very, very long time. And I think it's because when I moved to Belgium for graduate school and I was walking, so Rudy, this has to do with your transportation. When I started walking to get from point A to point B, food, I had a different relationship with food because if I ate and I didn't feel like walking, then I knew I had had too much. It was just a completely different relationship. And so now I look at food more as fuel. Like how do I, I can tell how I feel afterwards. If I do not feel like walking, then I need to eat something different. But it really was for so long, the relationship with food was really like just basically stay away from it and measure all of it. And now I'm thinking mm-hmm. when you said this pie or, you know, a chart with how many, how much do you have to run or how much exercise in order to work off a piece of pie, you know, that kind of makes me mad. And it's making me think about the amount of money in fat shaming. Think of how many people profit from making you feel ashamed of eating. Like there's a lot of money in fat, in fat shaming. There is. There's lots of money and and whole industries are propped up on the concept. Because if I can get you to feel bad about the size you're in, then you might want to spend your money with me as a purveyor of whatever weight loss product or service. It's really sad. It's it's very sad. And and the narrative, our general narrative as a society supports that. You know, it's oh, you're losing weight, oh good for you. And Rudy, when your client said, Oh, you're looking fit, right? Because you're looking thinner, right? So fit is equated to thinner. Those kinds of things are perpetuated quite easily and without much thought. It's so deeply ingrained in how we believe or what we think about ourselves, what beliefs we have about ourselves and food and our relationship of our body weight to our sense of self-worth that people don't even sit down to think about, wow, this is kind of messed up, right? Mm. Well, I have to ask, what are some of your favorite dishes for the Thanksgiving and Christmas holiday? So my wife makes a pretty incredible chocolate pecan pie. So there's, there's that. That's usually a request, but I'm more of a sides guy. So a good stuffing, or there's this sort of cornbread casserole thing that we might make. I dig that stuff. I hate turkey on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> I, I just don't like turkey, and I'm just going to say it. I'm all down for some ham, you know, and I've never had the fried turkey, Ew. which everybody talks about, uh, which is supposed to be like really good because apparently there's a lot more people out there that don't like turkey. So, there, you know, there's all these other ways to do it. But I'm just going to say it out there, and I'm sure I'll get a lot of hate mail. I don't like turkey on Thanksgiving Day. I only like the dark I won't meat. disagree with you. We, we do chicken. You do chicken. Yeah. Okay, nice. wait. Is there any truth? Nice. Does the turkey meat make you tired? Or is that just a myth? No, it, I believe... Isn't it tryptophan, Rich? Is it, doesn't it have a lot of... Yeah, that's what kind of gives you the, the turkey drowsiness deal. I believe it has a higher concentration of tryptophan. I'm not sure what, like how much. 
I mean, milk has a higher concentration of tryptophan. That's why you might drink it. People drink, you know, warm milk before bed or whatever. I believe turkey does. Yeah. And that's where it comes from. But we do chicken because turkey just gets dry and we just figured, you know, it's easier to make. It's also, they're also easier to get, super easy to get a great chicken (laughs) around Thanksgiving than it is a turkey. This has been a really great conversation. I love this discussion about the origins of BMI, fat phobia. We need to like really tailor our attitudes because it's just, you know, overall, it's just an unkind thing to remark on somebody's body. And I will throw this out too. If somebody is thinner than the last time you saw them, it's not a good idea to remark on it, even though we automatically think that that is good because someone's thinness can be a marker of something else that is not good. And so that's happened where somebody's congratulating somebody on being thin, thinking that that is automatically a good thing when it could be the result of something else. So just as you wouldn't want to comment on somebody gaining weight, you also shouldn't comment on somebody losing weight. You know, let's just let's just be kind and enjoy each other. And like you said, enjoy the holidays. I think it's a really great practice to eat consciously, to think about it, to be aware of how much you're enjoying the food, you know, laugh with your family, with your friends. I agree. It's a very good point about how, of course, you should never comment about somebody gaining weight. I do think these days you should also take caution about really saying anything about any weight gain or any weight loss. If somebody wants to tell you about their health situation, they will tell you. Otherwise, maybe they just don't want to talk about it. But if you do see me and you want to tell me I'm fit, I'm okay with that. So there's permission to the world. I'm putting to the world out there that I am okay with it. I am okay with it. Just just don't accuse you of semaglutide. Unless your response is, yeah, if semaglutide's Mount Whitney. (laughs) That's a good one, man. That was good. You should just say that. See what they say. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Sallow. We'd also like to thank our other sponsor for this episode, avonmoreinc.com. It started out as a small business in the 90s, and now it has an international reach in the bridge community. So if you play bridge or if any of your friends play bridge, this is a great holiday gift. Go to avonmoreinc.com and let them know that Good is in the Details sent you. They've got coasters, cards, tallies, anything you need for your next bridge party. If you'd like to support the pod, please check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash details. You can join our book club or get a shout out from us on the pod. Join us on Facebook, Good Is In The Details Pod, or Instagram, Good Is In The Details Pod. And if you have any questions for us, if you'd like to sponsor a show or pitch an idea, Pod at gmail.com. Okay, until next time, bye.